Hey guys, it is good to be with you again. And as we celebrate Constitution Day and look at the things that go with Constitution Day, we have a longevity that is unknown in other nations. You've already heard that we've had 221 years under the Constitution, 219 years since that document was ratified. And in that period of time, America has enjoyed stability unlike any other nation. Uh, if you look at where we are compared to other nations, we are the only nation in the world that's not average a revolution every 20 to 30 years. In the same period of time, we've had that piece of paper. France has gone through 15. Uh, Afghanistan went through five just in the 20th century. Uh, Poland went through seven since 1921. Russia's gone through four since 1917. We're the only one that doesn't have a revolution every 20 to 30 years. That is called American exceptionalism. It just means that we've had an exceptional track record of stability unknown by other nations. That term was given to us back in the 1830s by Alexis de Tocqueville, who did the book Democracy in America. And as he traveled America and looked across the nation, he saw all the things going on here. This is a statement he made. He said, the position of the Americans is quite exceptional. And it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one. That's where we get the term American exceptionalism. That was something he saw 50 years after, and now even 180 years after that, we still have that track record of being an exceptional nation with all the stability we have. Now, with all the stability that we've enjoyed here in America, all that the Constitution has done, it's significant that there was a period of time where it looked like it would not get done at all. As you go back to the Constitutional Convention of 1787, as they came together, they were not a nation. They were 13 states who sent their delegates, and everybody came with their own idea. So you had the Alexander Hamilton who came with the New York plan on how to fix the, the nation. You had James Madison who came with the Virginia plan on how to fix the nation. And, and William Patterson came with the New Jersey plan on how to fix the nation. And, and Roger Sherman came, well, got New Jersey for sure. Roger Sherman came with the Connecticut plan. And every, there you go. Now you're into it. Everybody had their own plan and everyone was unwilling to compromise and work with anyone else. And so after about five weeks, four to five weeks, it was breaking up and they were going home. People like Alexander Hamilton from New York, George Mason from Virginia said, you know, we've got a lot of Virginia, said, we're tired of fighting. We, we, we've had enough. We're, we're leaving. We're out of here. And it was at that time that the old man himself actually stood and gave the, the speech. Ale you, you have... Ben Franklin, 81 years old. Now, just to put this in context, you can see the screen. He was 81 years old. He was by far the oldest guy up there. You know what the average lifespan was in America back then? It was 35 years old. That means that you guys would already have had your midlife crisis by now. You'd be way over the hill. You'd be on the decline. Can you imagine 35 years old being the average lifespan in America? That's what it was. He was 81. He was by far the elder statesman. And he gave a speech that really changed the tone of the convention. Having been through a lot, having experienced a lot, this is what he said. And by the way, he was one of only six folks who had been in that room 11 years earlier when they signed the Declaration. Franklin was one of the six who had been there when they signed the Declaration. And back at the beginning in Congress, they had daily prayer. They had paid chaplains. As a matter of fact, if you look at the first prayer in Congress and look at what happened in that first prayer in Congress, historical records indicate they prayed for several hours in that session in Congress. They also had Bible studies in that session, etc. And Ben Franklin had been part of all those early sessions. So here he is in this room, and most of the guys that are with him writing the Constitution have not been in that room before. 
not having been in that room, he wanted to stop and say, guys, you need to understand a little bit of history about this room and what we used to do here. And that's when he turned and spoke to George Washington, the president of the convention. And addressing George Washington, this is what he told President Washington. He said, Mr. President, president of the convention, he says, the small progress we've made after four or five weeks, close attention and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We have just proved how flawed people are because we've gone for five weeks and we can't agree on anything. We're falling apart. People are going home. The convention's breaking up. He says, we indeed seem to fill our own want of political wisdom since we've been running about in search of it. He said, we've gone back to ancient history for models of government. We've examined the different forms of those republics which now longer exist. And they did. They went back and said, what can we learn from Rome or from Sparta or from Greece? They went through all the ancient republics that... None of that really applies to what America is facing right now. He says, and we viewed modern states all around Europe, but we find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. I mean, we've looked at what's going on with all the revolutions in Europe and the constitutions they've come up with, and that's really not what America needs. He says, in this situation of this assembly, groping, as it were, in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we've not once hitherto thought of applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? We used to pray all the time of the revolution. We haven't prayed once here. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. He said, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And he had, 81 years old, by far and away more than any other in that room. He said, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice... Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. He says, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers employing the assistance of heaven and its deliberations on our assembly be held in this morning, this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, what Franklin did was said, guys, we're not praying like we should. We've got problems, and we we should have been praying all along. And that's where they had an interesting discussion because they said, you know, everyone in Philadelphia and across the region knows we're having problems. They're seeing it break up. If we start praying now, then we're disrespecting prayer. We're saying that we only pray when we have problems, and that's the wrong message to send about prayer. Some of the others said, you know, we don't have a paid chaplain this time. We always had paid chaplains before, and we don't have any money that was appropriated. And so they talked about what to do, and as a result of, of the talking and conversation, what they did was they take a, took a three-day recess to cool off. They dismissed for three days, and according to George Washington's diary, they went to church in that time. They particularly went to the church of the Reverend William Rogers. And at church, having gone dismissed for three days, they go to church across that time. And being in his church, being in the Reverend William Rogers' church, they listened to the lessons and they listened to the orations. And then Reverend Rogers prayed a specific prayer over the Constitutional Convention. As you heard, we've been very blessed to have a number of original documents. And I have that 1787 prayer that he printed out that he prayed over the convention. It's a really cool prayer. 
They're in a time of impasse. They can't agree with each other. They're getting mad at each other. Things aren't going right. And the word's across the city. So here they are in his church. The convention's sitting right there in front of him, and he offers this prayer over them. This is what he says, and this is part of his prayer. It was a long prayer, but this is the part I want to focus on. He says, as this is a period, O Lord, big with events, impenetrable by any human scrutiny, we fervently recommend to thy fatherly notice that a gust body assembled in this city who compose our federal convention. Will it please thee, O thou eternal I am, to favor them from day to day with thy immediate presence? Be thou their wisdom and their strength, Enable them to devise such measures as may prove happily instrumental for healing all divisions and promoting the good of the great whole. And he went through and he prayed. He said, look, these guys are having trouble. They're fighting. They can't get along. It's all in division. God, will you heal that division? Will you bring them back together? After three days of having gone to church, heard the sermons, been prayed over, they reassembled. And when they reassembled, delegates like Jonathan Dayton at the Constitutional Convention said the whole atmosphere was different. The tone had changed somehow. They started cooperating together. They started saying, you know, that's really not that bad of an idea. I can live with that. And they started proceeding to get the document that we now have today. Now, the document we have today that we've had for 221 years, that we've lived under as a nation for 219 years, the guys who actually saw what happened had a lot to say about what they thought God had done in that document. Matter of fact, even Franklin himself. Franklin, who called them to prayer, they recessed for three days, they went to church, they had prayer. This is what Franklin said after he saw it was over and done with. We got the final document. He says, now, I beg that I may not be understood to infer that our general convention was divinely inspired when it formed the federal constitution. He said, now, I'm about to tell you something, but I don't want you to think that I'm saying the constitution is like the Bible. The constitution is not divinely inspired like the Bible, but he says... I have so much faith in the general government of the world by providence that I can hardly conceive a transaction of such momentous importance should be suffered to pass without being influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent, omnipresent, beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live, move, and have their being. He just quoted from Acts 17, 28. He said, I'm not telling you the Constitution is divinely inspired, but I'm telling you there's no way it came to be without God having guided and directed and overseen everything that we did in that convention. And he said that as an eyewitness. I saw it. I was there. And I'm telling you, God did this thing. Alexander Hamilton told the nation the same thing. When he wrote the Federalist Papers in Federalist Number 37, he told the nation what he had seen at the Constitutional Convention. He said, the real wonders of the Constitutional Convention overcame so many difficulties. He said, and to overcome them with so much agreement was as unprecedented as it was unexpected. We'd been arguing for weeks, and suddenly we started agreeing on everything after that three-day recess. He says, it's impossible for the pious man not to recognize in it a finger of that almighty hand which was so frequently extended to us in the critical stages of the revolution. He said, it's impo- if, if you have any fear of God at all, it's impossible for you not to see what God just did in writing this Constitution. The finger of God was all over that, just like we saw the hand of God all over the revolution. And then finally, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who lived in Philadelphia, signed her the Declaration. He was with the delegates every day. He saw the fights that were going on. When it was finished at the end, this is what he said. He said, now, I do not believe the Constitution was the offspring of divine inspiration. Again, I don't think the Constitution is like the Bible. I'm not saying that it's divinely inspired. He says, but I'm as perfectly satisfied that it's the much work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old or New Testament. He said, the Constitution goes up there with any miracle you want to find anywhere in the Bible. Anything Jesus did, anything Elijah did, it's that high of a miracle. It is absolutely done by God. We recognize that. We knew that. And this remarkable document under which we've lived 
It's interesting to see what we have because these guys, in that period of time where they finally started cooperating, came out with a number of provisions that are still, they still lead the world in so many areas. That with, with all the separation of powers and the checks and balances and the full republicanism, all the things that our Constitution has that so many other nations lack. And you go, where did these guys get these novel ideas? Because obviously nobody 200 years ago was using those ideas. Otherwise, they'd have constitutions that still exist today. So where did they get those ideas? Political science professor said, you know, we think if we can read their writings, these 55 guys, if we'll read their writings and see who they quoted, we'll know where they got their ideas. They collected 15,000 of the writings of the founding era. They read those writings, found 3,154 direct quotes. They took every quote back to its original source, and at the end of that time, they said, we now know where they got their ideas. The number one cited source in that period of the of the founding era, that, that period when we wrote the Constitution, they found, and it's reported in this book, it's a great book, The Origins of American Constitutionalism, but the number one source was the Bible. 34% of all political quotes came out of the Bible. And if you look at the Constitution, you'll find, for example, that George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams said that they got this concept of separation of powers. It was based on Jeremiah 17:9. You'll find the three branches of government listed in Isaiah 33:22. 200 years ago, they gave us tax exemptions for churches. We still enjoy that today. You'll find that in Ezra 7.24. You'll also find that in Deuteronomy 17.15, in Article 3 of the Constitution, the provision that we have at that, excuse me, the provision we have in Article 3 uh, that deals with capital punishment, you'll find it in Deuteronomy 17.15. You'll also find in Exodus 18.21, Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, which deals with what we call full republicanism. Exodus 18.21 says, when you have an election, you choose leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You choose local, county, state, and federal. That is the basis of Article 4, Section 4 in the Constitution. It says, when we have elections in November, we get to elect local officials, county officials, state officials, and national officials. That's the same provision. That's the verse they quoted in writing Article 4, Section 4. You find that Exodus, Ezekiel 18.20 is the basis of the Article 3 provision uh, that deals with what's called a bill of attainder. You'll find that directly out of the Bible. Deuteronomy 17.6 is the executive qualifications for the executive officer of the United States came right out of Deuteronomy. All these passages in the Bible you'll find directly placed into the Constitution, side by side. So these guys were very clear on what they thought. And you see, that's what's produced American exceptionalism. We're a different nation because we have a different set of ideas, but those ideas came directly out of the Bible, and they came as a result of guys who turned to God and said, it's outside our wisdom band. Now, we've got this great document. There's no guarantee that we're going to last 250 years. I mean, there's no, no guarantee. We've lasted 221, but what keeps us going? Well, there's a great scripture, of course, in Psalms 11.3 that says, If the foundations be destroyed, what do the righteous do? So how do we preserve the constitutional foundations we have? Well, it's interesting that 220 years ago when they were writing the Constitution, they had that discussion. How are we going to preserve what we've done here? And at the convention, a guy named John Francis Mercer, one of the delegates at the convention, he made a very wise, very astute biblical insight. He says, People are going to look at this Constitution, and they're going to think that this Constitution is really what governs America. He said, and that's not accurate. Here's what he said. He said, it's a great mistake to suppose that the paper we're to propose will govern the United States. 
He says, if you think it's the Constitution that governs America, he said, you are dead wrong. He said, it's not the Constitution, but it's the men that the Constitution will bring into the government and the interest they have in maintaining it that, that will govern them. He said, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a paper that shows how to choose your leaders. And if you choose the right kind of leaders, this Constitution will preserve itself. If you choose the wrong kind of leaders, this Constitution will be absolutely worthless. He said, the paper will only mark out the mode and the form, but men are the substance and men must do the business. The paper is no good without the right kind of leaders to go with it to preserve the values that are in that paper. That's what we've seen on the U.S. Supreme Court. We've got, you know, Dean Staver will tell you right now, we've got four justices on the court who actually read the Constitution, and we have five justices who don't know what it is. See, it's worthless in the hands of those kind of justices or those kind of leaders, whether they be local leaders, county leaders, state leaders, or federal leaders. And that's nothing more than Proverbs 29.2. The Scripture tells us that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. You can be in a nation like Israel, established by God, with laws given by God himself, and if you've got the wrong kind of leaders, it's not a fun nation to be in. If you've got leaders like Ahab and Jezebel or Manasseh or Jeroboam or other bad leaders, it doesn't matter that God founded the nation, doesn't matter that it has God's laws, wrong kind of leaders will screw up a nation. Now, having said that, what that means is elections, because the only way the righteous or the wicked rule in America is we choose them and we place them into office. We look at an election cycle this year as we do every two years, and as we look at an election cycle this year, if you watched anything about either of the two parties' conventions over the last few weeks, you heard dozens of issues that were raised. They're all sort of the candidates, both parties, they've, they've got about 40 issues that have been raised between them. And as you look at those issues as a Christian, you say, well, man, how, how do I prioritize those issues? You know, how do I know what's most important? And, and, and what do I need to do to, to preserve the prosperity that we've enjoyed for 221 years? And, and the way you preserve the prosperity is going back to the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us in Proverbs 14:34 that righteousness exalts a nation. So if you want the nation to be exalted, you've got to make sure the policies you pursue will promote righteousness. Uh, economic policies will not necessarily do it unless they're based on righteousness. And don't think that, that economic policies are counter to righteousness. They're not. The Bible is very clear about economics, but it just has to be done a biblical way if it's going to work. So righteousness is the basis of what has to be done. And fortunately for us, the Bible... Bible is very clear about all of those issues. As a matter of fact, if you look at what God gave his people, God gave his people a total of 613 laws. And if you look at the laws that he gave, that is the most comprehensive legal system ever given to any people anywhere. Those 613 laws we have in the scriptures, they deal with health care. And by the way, man, one of the greatest books you'll ever find on biblical health care is this book called None of These Diseases, done by a medical doctor. He says, you know, God gave these health laws 5,000 years ago, and we're just now figuring out through studies that he was really right 5,000 years ago. All these things he told us, we can now put medical study. I saw another study that came out just this week validating yet another one of God's health laws, which is a surprise to the medical community. But it's, it's again, this thing that God deals with health care, and he tells us exactly how to do it right out of the Scriptures. God also deals with social justice, issues of how do we deal with poverty? How, how do we take care of those who are in poverty? Scriptures are very good about that, but Scriptures don't stop there. The Scriptures also tell us about immigration. They tell us about the war and military, education, taxes, foreign relations, environment. You name the issue, the Bible deals with it. Now, out of those 613 laws that God gave in that comprehensive system, there was a point in Exodus 34 where he says, now, I've given you all these laws, but I do need you to know that some are more important than others. And so he took those 613 laws and he reduced them to his top 10. 
He gave us the top 10 that, he, that made his top 10 list. Out of 613 laws, dozens of issues, he said, now here's my top 10. We would call that today the Ten Commandments. And as you look at those Ten Commandments, you can look and say, well, what issues did make God's top 10? What, what are issues of righteousness that are most important to him? Well, you certainly have the sixth command, which says, thou shalt not kill. Now, it actually doesn't say, thou shalt not kill. Uh, you ask any Hebrew scholar, and they'll say, thou shalt not murder. There's a big difference between killing and murder. You will find that the Bible allows the taking of life on three occasions without you getting in trouble. If you take a life in self-defense, the Scripture says you don't even have to go to the city of refuge. The, the, uh, the avenger can't come after you. If you kill someone in self-defense, that's, that's not, you're not in trouble with God for having done that. If you kill someone in a justified war, you're not in trouble. And if someone is put to death through civil justice under Genesis 9, if God, sa- God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by him will man's blood be shed. If someone kills someone else and they're put to death, that's not a problem. And, and, and that kind, what God always gets ticked off over, what he cannot handle is the shedding of innocent blood. Now, that's the difference between capital punishment and abortion. Abortion is a shedding of innocent blood. Capital punishment is a shedding of guilty blood. And there's a big difference between the two. And you see, that's why it's easy to look at something like the Sixth Command and say that... (laughs) See... What made God's top ten list was murder. And by the way, if you go into the New Testament and look at the two occasions where Jesus went over the Ten Commandments again, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, it's translated properly there. Jesus says, thou shalt do no murder. And, and that is the important thing. So when I look at that passage, I say, all right, God does not want the shedding of innocent blood. It's real easy to say abortion makes God's top ten. No question about it. And when I look at command number seven about thou shalt not commit adultery, that comes right on the heels of having Genesis 1 through 3 where God says, now here's the relationship I want I got one man got one woman put them together for life this is a good thing he said that's good that's a relationship and then he tells us in top 10 you preserve it exactly the way I told you to back there I, I don't want you messing that relationship up so it's real it's real easy to say that marriage makes God's top 10 which is why gay marriage is an issue that can be put in the top 10 but you know as you look through those top 10 there's things that don't make God's top ten. What does not make God's top ten, for example, is things like poverty, things like health care. And they are important and they are biblical. It's just that they don't make the top priority list. It's not that they're not important. They are, but they, just, they don't make the list. And as you look at the Ten Commandments, and you may be aware of this, the Ten Commandments as they appear in Hebrew are not... They're not verses. They're, they're not numbered. It's just a paragraph. It all appears in a paragraph. And that's why there are five different versions of the Ten Commandments. There's a Catholic version of the Ten Commandments, a Jewish version of the Ten Commandments, a Protestant version, an Orthodox version, and a Lutheran version. And the difference is the way they're numbered. Uh, when you see a, a Ten Commandments monument like this, and this is the one that was won at the Supreme Court case two years ago in, in Perry versus Van Orden. This is the Ten Commandments monument out of Texas that the court said it's okay to leave that out there. You see up top where it says, I am the Lord thy God. You, you see that opening phrase there? That, the way this is set up, tells us that this is a Protestant version of the Ten Commandments because Protestants use that as the prologue to the Ten Commandments. We use that, and then we have the Ten Commandments under that. Now, the Jewish version... That, that, that part that circled right there is actually the first command. And I really like the Jewish logic on this because the Jews say, the reason we tell you up front that I am the Lord thy God, the reason the number one thing is to acknowledge God is if you don't acknowledge God as your source and authority, then none of the other commands have any authority below that. 
I mean, the reason we don't kill is because we recognize that God will hold us accountable. The reason we don't perjure ourselves is we recognize. So they say the number one command in the Jewish verse, and again, in the Hebrew, all this is just a paragraph, but this is the opening line of the paragraph, and the Jews make this commandment number one is you have to acknowledge God right up top. So when I look at the Ten Commandments, that's an easy three issues that make the Ten Commandments, abortion and marriage protection and religious acknowledgments. All, all of those three things are in God's top ten. There's one other that's worth noting because righteousness is the, is the emphasis. If righteousness is going to exalt a nation, then what produces righteousness? Let me take you to Isaiah 126. Isaiah 126, you have a situation where God has called the prophet Isaiah to try to return the nation of Israel, or actually Judah, back to its roots, get them back to God. And Isaiah had a tough task. The civil leader at that time was Manasseh, maybe the most wicked king in Judah's history. And God told Isaiah, I'm going to get this nation back to me, and here's how I'm going to do it. Isaiah 126, God says, I'll give you judges as at the beginning and lawyers as at the first. He says, I'm going to give you the right kind of judges, the right kind of lawyers. He says, and then, and the word then is really big. God's just said, on this conditional then here will be the results. If I give you the right kind of judges and lawyers, he says, then you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, it is interesting that God ties the righteousness of an area to the type of judges you have in that area. And that really is the culture war in America. We have never had a legislature in the history of the United States in 232 years since the Declaration. We've never had a legislature pass any law that says we're going to have abortion on demand in our state. That came from judges. We've never had a legislature say we're going to change the definition of marriage. We've only had judges tell legislatures to do that. We've never had a legislature say you can't pray at a football game and you can't have a prayer at a graduation. We've only had judges say, see, the whole thing we fight on the culture wars come from judges, not from a single legislature legislature. And that's why God says the righteousness of a land is based on the type of judges in that land. So when I look at that and I say, you know, judges are really important. And by the way, judges are so important that God gives a number of verses directing on how we should deal with judges. And, and you take this one, Psalms 2, 10 through 12, the scripture says, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord of fear, kiss the son, S-O-N, lest he be angry and his wrath be kindled. Judges, pay attention here. Fear God, honor his son, or God's going to get ticked off and we're all going to be in trouble. I mean, that's a real clear directive for judges. You have the same thing in Second Chronicles 19, verses 6 and 7. Judges, take heed to what you do, for you're not judging for, the, for man, but for the Lord who's with you in judgment. Therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. We've got a lot of judges with no fear of God whatsoever. But that's what judges are supposed to have is a fear of God. If they fear God, you get the right kind of rulings. You, you get rulings that preserve biblical values rather than attack them. In the same way, you have Ezra 7.25. It says, appoint judges who know the laws of God. Now, that is a direct command to candidates running for president this year. The Bible says, put judges in there who know the laws of God because then the there can be righteousness in the land. So judicial appointments really becomes a very important thing. And as Dean Staver can tell you, you know, we're, we're kind of at a mixed court right now. We've got four guys who read the Constitution, four who don't, four God-fearing guys. We have two justices on the court added recently who are pro-life justices. We've had our two first pro-life victories at the U.S. Supreme Court since Roe v. Wade in 1973. As a result of those two, we're seeing... We've had... The first Ten Commandments victory in 26 years at the Supreme Court. We're seeing changes as a result. And this next election, the president is sworn in on January of 2009. Of the nine justices who are sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court, six of the nine will be 70 years or older. Somebody's going to make a lot of appointments, and they need to appoint judges who know the laws of God. That's what the Scripture tells us very clearly. Now, that's why... 
certainly what makes the list these four areas, these four areas of judicial appointments, abortion, marriage protection, public religion, that makes God's top list. There's no question about that. But you'll notice that poverty did not make the list. Why, why, why didn't it make that? Don't we care about the poor? Absolutely we care about the poor. The Bible, if, you will use, if you'll take the word poor and search the Bible, you'll find 205 verses in the Bible that address poor, address the poor. We're told how to deal with the poor. I mean, there's so many verses, but you know what's interesting is the three institutions that God created in the Bible. He created family in Genesis 1 through 3. He created civil government in Genesis 4 over through 32. And he created the church in Genesis 32 through 50. You look at the three institutions, it's interesting that in the Bible, in 205 verses on dealing with the poor, government does not receive a single verse on addressing the needs of the poor. Now, the church and civil government does. And, and I, I don't want you to think I'm being calloused here, but Isaiah 58 says we're supposed to fast. And why are we supposed to fast? Isaiah 58 says you're supposed to fast so that you will learn to give your bread to the poor, so that you won't turn your eyes away from the needy, so that you'll see what's going on. And we have Matthew 25 where the Jesus says, you came and visited me when I was in prison. You fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was saying, this is all individual action. Then we have Paul going through the book of Acts, taking collections for the poor at Jerusalem, going through all the churches, taking collections so the church can deal. We've got all these things, nothing in the Bible with the government dealing with poor. Now, let's say that the Bible didn't address the issue of poverty. Would it then be a good idea for government to deal with the poor? I mean, if the Bible didn't say very clearly that this is the jurisdiction of individuals and church, would it be okay for a government to deal with it? Let me take you to a group called the American Institute of Philanthropy. These are the guys that if you give money to a charity, they tell you whether your money is actually getting where it's supposed to. Sometimes you give to a charity, it ends up in the pockets of people running the charity rather than people you're giving to. So the American Institute of Philanthropy rates all the charities. They look and say, is your money actually going where it's supposed to? And according to these guys, if you give a dollar to a charity over, I give to a charity called Wounded Warriors for the soldiers who have been hurt and their families. So when I give to that, is my money actually making it there? Well, they say if 60% of the money you give reaches its goal, then that's a good charity. They expect that 40% can be taken to be used for fundraising and advertising and, and mailing to get more. But if 60% of the dollar I give reaches the wounded warriors, then that's a good charity. So that's what you look for is a 60% threshold. Now, we have given through the federal government $9 trillion to the poor. You know what percent reach the poor? 30%. That's a lousy charity. There's not a person in America who would give to a charity who only got 30 cents out of every dollar to reach the poor. If the federal government would just take the money it has and give it to churches to reach the poor, you would more than double the amount of money that the poor received just by the government staying out of it. You see, God did not design government to deal with that. He designed our hearts to deal with that. Government doesn't have a heart to deal with that. Now, And by the way, if I can touch real quickly on faith-based programs, this is the difference that the church can make when it gets involved in social justice issues. Government's not to be involved in these kind of issues, at least not biblically. There's not a model for it. Do you know recidivism? When you look at prisons, we have all these state and federal prisons. Right now, the recidivism rate in state and federal prisons is 68%. In other words, 68% of those released from prison within three years will commit a crime that puts them back in prison. But we now have 15 states who have faith-based prisons, Texas and Indiana and Florida and elsewhere. You know what the recidivism rate is in those prisons? Only 8% of those in those prisons get put back in prison. It makes a difference when you deal with the heart. Says an 85% approval. You have the same thing. 
You have the same thing when you look at drug rehab. In a government-run drug rehab program, less than 20% of people are cured of drug problems. In a faith-based drug rehab program, over 70% are cured. That's the same with poverty. Anytime, anytime the church and people get involved in meeting needs, needs get met. Federal government will not meet needs. It was never designed to meet needs. That's not the way God designed government. So having said that, righteousness is what's the a nation. When you look in the scriptures, the issues of righteousness, and these are the issues on which we need to vote, very simple, judicial appointments, abortion, marriage protection, religious acknowledgments, those are the top issues. Now, we have an election with two candidates, and we're saying, where are these two guys? Let me tell you something about both of these candidates. I recommend highly that you do not listen to what either one of these two guys say. Totally ignore everything. And I'll tell you why. The reason is they're both U.S. senators. They both get between 10 and 13,000 bills introduced every session of Congress. They both have thousands of votes that they have made. Why do I care what they say when I can look at what they've done? See, if I go look at their votes, I don't care what they say. Both of them. They both have voting records. Now, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. There is a website that's called Project Vote Smart. If you go to votesmart.org, you can check the actions of both candidates. Ignore the rhetoric. People can say the right thing and do the wrong thing. Look at what they do. If you do, you'll see that presidential candidates in the top right-hand corner is circled. You click on presidential candidates, it will take you to the page with the six presidential candidates who have now announced. The two primary candidates that we hear the most talked about are McCain and Obama. So click on either picture. When you get there, this page will come up. And I recommend that you go to what's called interest group ratings. With thousands of votes that are out there, you have all these different groups that monitor how they vote. They get groups that monitor agriculture, groups that monitor economic spending, groups that monitor all these different issues. So I can look at the group ratings and I can say, well, human rights campaign, which is the most ardent, strenuous, they're, they're activists pro-homosexual. They're activist gay organization. They want to destroy traditional marriage. If they have endorsed one of those two candidates, I'm probably going the other way because I don't hold the value system they have. The same thing would happen with ACLU. If the ACLU likes them, I'm probably not going to like them. On the other hand, you've got folks like Family Research Council. Family Research Council likes them. That's a biblical value group. If, if they look at all those votes and say they voted right on all these biblical issues, then that's probably candidate that, I, that I'm going to like. The same thing with National Right to Life. On the other side, you've got Planned Parenthood. If Planned Parenthood says this is a perfect rating, we rate this person as a perfect 100 for Planned Parenthood, that's probably not the person I'm going to be looking for. Same thing on NARAL and the same thing with groups like National Rifle Association where that if you're concerned about the right to keep and bear arms, you say, how do they come? So these are people who do nothing but look at their voting records. So I encourage you to do that. As I close out this morning, let me encourage you to go to website wallbuilders.com. We have presidential voter guides you can get. Also there, there are inserts that you can use for people around you to get them out to vote. Uh, you've already heard, please register to vote here locally on campus. You need to be involved right here around, be salt and light right here. And finally, there's a book called The Bible Voters in the 2008 Election that I would recommend to you. Let's close out with a word of prayer if we can. Father, thanks for the wonderful nation you've given us. It's a blessing. Sometimes we take it for granted, but Father, your blessing has been over this nation. And Father, we pray that we would have the stewardship to continue to give you an opportunity to bless this nation. Help us to elect individuals at local, county, state, and federal levels that will promote righteousness. We want you to bless America, but we know you've got to have something to work with, Father. So help us to choose leaders and elect leaders that will be wise and that will promote righteousness. And Father, we pray for all the candidates running this election, that you strengthen them, 
that you, you raise up the ones you want, Father, but raise up your people to go and vote for those folks and let us be strong influences in preserving the Constitution that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fine. No, not good. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.